was so often in this series that we talk about letting it go and the imagery of, of bowling. I, I thought that was a great uh, illustration. There's so many times we're holding on to things that hurt us in our vocational lives. Uh, it's hurting us in our relational world. And, and many of you have confessed to me that it's hurting in your relationship with God. And I'm so thankful for those of you that have been here through all four of these messages uh, who love the church and connecting with everyone. And I have to say thank you again uh, to all of you who helped uh, with Vacation Bible School, uh, to those of you that helped this past week with funeral dinners, and those of you that have made all the difference uh, as being the church. You know, so often we get overwhelmed by the needs of the world, and we wonder, you know, can I actually do anything? Can I do something? And you have most all stepped up in a tangible way, and I say, you know, to God be the glory, great things he's done, and great things he is doing through each of you. Now today I want to begin by asking you a question. Have you ever been afraid? And I'm not just talking about little fears, but really afraid, your backs against the wall kind of fears. I talk to a lot of people these days who are afraid, and I found this to be true. Fear, it comes in all sizes and shapes, but it always threatens to change us. It always takes us out of where we're comfortable or where things are going well, and it it takes us into a different mindset and, and costs different resources. I find many are filled with relational fears these days. Some of you are in a marriage, some of you are in, are in a relationship with another person that's just kind of teetering on the brink right now. Some of the relationships of your past are, are even coming up to cause problems in your present. Some of you are making decisions, long-term care decisions, for an aging mom or dad. Or you've got a son or a daughter that are out of control and, and you don't know what to do, and so you're relationally afraid. Then I talk to people these days who have some vocational fears. Uh, fear of unemployment, of job loss and cutbacks. Uh, maybe you're dwelling with a work situation right now and you're wondering, is my job even going to sustain me for another year? Some of you are dealing uh, with medical fears. What do you do when you've had the treatments, you've had the surgery, and the doctors say, well, there's really nothing more that we can do? Some of you are wondering if this is going to be your last Christmas or your last Christmas with mom or dad. And there's a medical fear. Some of you have educational fears. There are some of you that are in college or online programs or graduate programs, and you're afraid. Am I going to have what it takes to make the grade? Am I going to excel? Uh, we've got a few graduates, uh, two that showed up out of, what, eight this past year uh, for Graduate Sunday, but they have no idea what lies ahead for them. And, and there's the job market issues today, and, and so there's a lot of fear that comes with that uncertainty. And then maybe you're dealing with security fears these days. It seems like every day we turn on the news, there's another shooting, another random murder, terrorist attacks, and, and we feel it at a very personal level. A lot of us live with security fears, and maybe this time of year it's, it's fears about weather, tornadoes, storms, and such. And while I've been mentioning some of these fears, some of you, you know, you're in church here today because you're living with fears, and you're looking for hope. You're looking for answers. And some of you are saying, I can't believe you're talking about this right now because my life, it's just got the tentacles of fear gripping it all over. 
Here's a little bit of, of biblical trivia for you. What is the most often repeated command in Scripture? Now, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a hint. It's not one of the Ten Commandments. It's not the command uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your strength, though that is the greatest commandment. The most often repeated command in Scripture is fear not. Do not be afraid. And that's something that the Israelites needed to hear in our passage for today. I want to unpack with you, if you'll turn with me in Scripture, to Exodus chapter 14 this morning in the Old Testament. And you'll see, this is a time when the Israelites are dealing with very real fear. It's a scene that even if you've never read it in the Bible, uh, you're probably familiar with it because you probably saw a scene in a movie. Uh, And here's what's going on. The Israelites are just days away from being released from slavery in Egypt. They've made their escape, and they've come to a barrier known as the Red Sea. And they don't see any way around it. Two million Israelites, along with Moses, their leader, standing before them. They've had 24 hours of incredible tension and movement and excitement. But it's all in danger of coming to a very sudden and tragic end. Because in pursuit of them is the Egyptian army. You see, Pharaoh at this point, he's changed his mind and he wants his labor force back. He wants the hardest of the workers to come back into slavery to to, to be his slaves. And he wants to make the rest pay for their insolence, pay for their insult, pay for their injury. And spoiler alert, he's not going to be happy (laughs) with the outcome of this story. So here they are, and it's just been hours since they've been released from slavery, since the 10th plague, when the death angel passed over their homes, sparing their oldest sons because they'd put the blood of the Passover lamb on the door frames. But Egypt, they'd lost their sons. Exodus 12, 29 says this. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all of his officials and all the Egyptians, they got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. And now here they are. The Egyptian army's coming, bloodthirsty for revenge. The Red Sea is at one side. The thunder of hoofbeats is heard on the other. They could see the cloud of dust being kicked up by the chariot wheels, and they're afraid. And the Bible says this in our passage for today. In Exodus 14, verse 10, As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. You could see the fear. You could hear the stress in in their tone. And the Israelites... Some might say they're having a very natural response to the threatening situation. But in reality, their back is against the wall, and they've got a choice. 
And if you're taking notes, I, I just want to encourage you to write down these three things. The first thing we see about them in that passage is, is that they're afraid. But then they start to get sarcastic. They start to get sarcastic with their leader Moses, and then they start imagining worst-case scenarios. Now, there's a number of times that I can point to in my own life when my back has been against the wall, and when I have been afraid, and I know what it's like to be fearful of a situation uh, medically and otherwise in your home, I know what it's like to be in a threatening situation at work as a minister. And sometimes when you're afraid, you start to get sarcastic. And you say things like, can you believe what she said? Can you believe what he did? How in the world did they ever think that was going to be helpful? I mean, what a bright idea that that really was. And we get all sarcastic. One of my favorite collection of memes that I have on my computer uh, or Pinterest post are these. I love this one. Some people just need a high five in the face with a chair. Some people are like clouds. When they disappear, it's a brighter day. And this is one of my favorites. You know how you can smack something to get it to work? I wish I could do that with people. You didn't know you had such a spiritual minister, right? Uh, Actually, I love that last one. I I keep telling Joyce, take that down from the wall in your No, I'm just kidding. That's mine. Um, We get sarcastic, and it's a way to manage stress. It's a way to manage our fears. And then we start imagining worst-case scenarios about everything going to pieces. And it can become this merry-go-round in our mind and in our hearts. And we keep turning these things around. And I I can do it when when it's fear and it's sarcasm over and over again. And while it's understandable that we do that, I've learned it's never really that productive. What I need, and and perhaps what you need in that kind of a moment, is for someone to say, hey, if if you give in to fear, if you give in to sarcasm, uh, if you start turning out these catastrophizing negative things, kind of these worst-case scenarios, where's it going to take you? I mean, and, and does it reflect the character and the power of the God you follow, and who loves you immeasurably enough that he would sacrifice his one and only son for your life. Isn't there a better way? Isn't there a better plan? The scripture says this way in Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Paul said, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Now, as we look at these three things, being afraid and sarcastic and and worst-case scenarios, Let's look at what it means to be afraid and terrified. Let me ask you, do you make better decisions or worse decisions when you're filled with fear? Yeah, me too. The U.S. government has a policy manual uh, for volunteers in the Peace Corps if they volunteer in the Amazon jungle. And I came across some instructions they have uh, for volunteers there if you're attacked by a snake known as the anaconda. Now, the anaconda is the largest snake on Earth, it's about 35 feet long, okay? And, and it can eat an animal that's 300 to 400 pounds larger than itself. So here's what the Peace Corps reads. If you're in the Amazon jungle and you have one of these approaching you, it says this. If you're attacked by an anaconda, number one, don't run. The snake is few are. <laughs> right, okay. Number two, lie flat on the ground with your arms at your sides. And it can... <laughs> And, and, and tuck in your chin. The snake will come 
and begin to nudge all over your body. Do not panic. Okay? Uh, lie perfectly still, and the snake will then begin to suck your legs into its mouth. It will then move towards your ankle and knees. Be still. This will take a long time. When your knees have finally passed the snake's mouth, reach down and with as little as movement as possible, take out your knife, very gently sliding it into the snake's mouth between the edge of its mouth and your leg, and then give a sudden rip upward, severing its jawline and its head. Last point, be sure you have your knife. It's natural when your back's against the wall to be afraid, right? And yet sometimes we do the exact opposite. The serpent, the one that accuses us, the one who would love to see us destroyed, comes at us, and rather than trusting in God, we run. How about sarcasm? Listen to what some of the, the Israelites give to Moses again. This is Exodus 14, 11. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt you brought us into the desert to die? I mean, I mean are, are cemeteries cheaper in, in the desert, Moses? Is there a reason you brought us out here? And they throw this in, in, in the next verse, in verse 12. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? You live your life, Moses. We'll live our. Let us serve the Egyptians. Now, does anybody know a little history about this? Is that really what they said? Leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? No. They couldn't wait to get out of Egypt. They were begging God. They were begging Moses, get us out of here. In fact, it's written in Exodus 2.23. The Israelites, they groaned in their slavery, and they cried out. And their cry for help came uh, for, uh, because of their slavery, went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. They wanted out. But now because they're afraid, they move on to being sarcastic. They're remembering life in Egypt as better than it really was. And they're playing the blame game. And, and I could tell you, I've learned in marriage, I've learned in family, I've learned in friendships, and I've learned in ministry that as tempting as it is to get sarcastic when you're afraid, it does absolutely no good. It doesn't help the situation. It only throws fuel on the fire. It makes matters worse, and it complicates the situation. Some of you have business partnerships with other people, or you know people that do. I thought of my own father as I was writing this message. He went into business with a man, and some of you have done the same. You've gone into a business together, and, and you just knew it was going to be great because you were each other's biggest fans. But business has been tough, and you're afraid, so what do you do? You start to get sarcastic. You start tearing down this partner that you used to cheer on. The same thing happens in marriage relationships. Things get tough. Fears start to build. The sarcasm comes out. And the person who you used to be their best cheerleader, suddenly you start to be their greatest critic. In 30 years of ministry, I've seen church situations where people get uh, snippy with each other. 
And they get sarcastic with church leaders because things didn't go the way they wanted them to go. Or a decision didn't get made the way they wanted the decision to get made. And and they get sarcastic. And how does that help the situation? How is that Christ-like? But when you're afraid, you get sarcastic. And sometimes you compound the issue by going to worst-case scenarios. You start imagining the worst. And think about that for a moment because there are some, and you probably know who they are, they're professionals at this one. Or maybe you're married to someone who has turned catastrophizing into an art form. And the Israelites look at their situation and where this is heading, and they predict an outcome that's not good. At the end of verse 12, they said, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Now, at this point in the account, how many have died in the desert? None. Nobody has died in the desert. Let me ask you, does that kind of catastrophizing focus our faith where it needs to be? The author of Aesop's Fables once said, My life has been full of terrible misfortunes, most of which never actually happened. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 6, 27, Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? It's unproductive. It doesn't solve your problems, and you can use the energy that God provides you in a much more constructive, in a much more positive way. So these Israelites, they're out in the desert, and the army of Egypt is coming. They're getting sarcastic with their leader. They're starting to catastrophize. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. We're not going to make it out of here. This is it for all of us. And it's at that point that Moses stands up and he puts on a clinic in crisis and leadership management and God-honoring coping skills. He wants the two million people to know that God's plan, it sustains us beyond the fear. Moses says, time out, everyone. This is not helping. We need to go a completely different direction. And he says in verse 13 of Exodus 14, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Now I want you to notice there's three things he says there. Do not be afraid. Stand firm. And then you will see God's deliverance. You see, Moses is saying, we're going to abandon that whole scared, sarcastic, worst-case scenario plan, and we're going to work on the let-it-go plan. And this is what the let-it-go plan looks like. Here's the three that counter the others. Number one, we're going to have a fear-not mentality, and we're not going to be afraid. We're going to, two, we're going to stand firm, and then we're going to expect God's help. Fear not, stand firm, expect God's help today that God is going to come through for us. That's our plan, he says to everyone. That's what we're going to go for. And can I tell you from my own experience that that plan is a whole lot better than the first plan. That's a plan that will actually work when your back's against the wall. And I want you to notice that this plan, this comes right out of Scripture. Fear not, stand firm and expect God's help. Now let's talk a little bit about what it means to fear not. Because there are some of you this morning that are wondering, Bill, when I think about my kids, when I think about my marriage, when I think about my job, I I don't even know if it's possible not to be afraid. 
Well, I want you to know that I believe it is no matter the situation. The circumstance might change. The reality and the truth never does. You see, I believe through the power of God, through the work of His Holy Spirit within your life and God's inexhaustible love that it is possible to fear not. After all, do we believe in the Bible? 1 John 4.18 says, there's no fear in love. No fear. Because perfect love, it drives out fear. It is possible to tame the wild, irrational, fearful thoughts that just go out of control and flood your mind. Take a look at this picture. How many of you remember this event? Yeah. Uh, Miracle on the Hudson. Several years ago, Captain Chesley Burnett, Sully Sullenberger. Uh, maybe you saw the movie Sully and you were shocked at how, how much like Tom Hanks he looked, right? Um, but Captain Sully, he takes off with U.S. Airways Flight 1549 from LaGuardia in New York City with 155 people on board. And almost immediately they encounter a flock of Canadian geese that, that fly into the engine and stall all the engines on the plane. He's got a split second to make a decision. What would you do? <laughs> what did he do in a moment like that? Did he get on the intercom and say, folks, this is terrible. Hope you bought that last-minute insurance in the airport. Hope you bought, brought your swimsuit with you. You're going to need it in a minute. He didn't get on the intercom and say, people, if you don't believe in God, you better pray to him right now because you're about to meet him very soon. That's not what he does. Very simply, he's got thousands of hours of flight time. He doesn't panic. He has practiced for this exact moment. He's trained for the situation hundreds of times. He calmly tells the tower at LaGuardia, we're going into the Hudson. 90 seconds before landing the plane, he says three words over the intercom to the people. Prepare for impact. He calmly lands the plane. And all 155 people on that day had their lives saved because someone didn't fear. Because someone was calm. Captain Sullenberger wrote a book called Highest Duty. And he said this, we all have to find the courage to leave the shore. That means we have to leave the crutch of our lifelong complaints or resentments. We have to leave behind resentments over our upbringing or our bodies or whatever. It means no longer focusing on negative energy or on things that are beyond our control. It means looking toward the safety of the familiar. But above all, it means acting in faith. Acting. What does a heart surgeon do? What does a brain surgeon do in the middle of surgery when unexpected things happen? When things go wrong, do they drop everything and step back and say, whoops, <laughs> oh no, 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 what are we going to do? No. They've trained for that. Hundred, well, the good doctors don't do that. <laughs> Hundreds of times, they stay focused. Some of you are grandparents, and you're raising your grandchildren. Some of you grandparents, you're raising toddlers, and if, if there's anybody in my estimation that should freak out, it's, it's you guys, Okay. But you've learned by experience to tame those wild, irrational fears that sometimes come to new parents. The Apostle Paul would say to a young developing leader in Timothy these words in 2 Timothy 1.7, For the spirit that God gave us, it does not make us timid, but it gives us power, love, and, and the spirit of God as well. Say the words with me. It gives us self discipline. 
the fruit of God's Holy Spirit at work in our life as followers of Christ, self-discipline. You see, you can fear when you're in a fear-inducing position. And then Moses says, stand firm. Same thing that we're told as we're putting on that spiritual armor in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you can be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. So, stand firm then. Before I came to Springfield, I was at a small church in Erlanger, Kentucky. Uh, Just one exit north of Florence where the big mall was. I was one exit south of where John Russell, Bob Russell's brother, preached at a large Christian church. And there were some wonderful people at this little church. And almost from the start, though, uh, it was kind of clear that for our family, it wasn't going to be the right fit. There was only one elder leading the church. And uh, if you know me, and I think if you know the book of Acts, I believe in a plurality of elders. And so that wasn't a good way for the church to be. And that elder's wife happened to be dying of cancer. But the whole time she was in her last months of life, he was online meeting new women, talking with them, setting up dates with them. And within the first week after her passing, he was back out at restaurants, back out and dating. Just to give you an idea, the things, it wasn't the right fit. And so after a lot of prayer and conversations with a lot of people I respect, Cheryl and I, we made the decision to to leave that ministry. And I had some great talks on the phone with a guy I wasn't too sure about named Ron Jennings. Uh, And I'd be less than honest with you if I didn't admit that, that I didn't have nights where I laid in bed with thoughts that were fearful. I mean, I could get sarcastic as I stare at the ceiling and, and imagine all the worst-case scenarios. I, I could wonder, did I misunderstand God on this? Are we making the wrong decision? Is my family going to be provided for? I mean, where are my kids going to go to school? Will they be scarred from taking them from their friends that they've made at this age into a new environment? What's Ron Jennings really going to be like when I meet him in person? I mean, we met his wife, and she was great, but Ron, I wasn't so sure. And I was into that for about a month when I was listening to the radio. And there was a song by Matt Redman on called You Never Let Go. And that song just kind of, it stuck in my soul. The lyrics say, I can see a light that is coming for the heart that holds on. And there will be an end to these troubles, but until that day comes. Still I will praise you. Still I will praise you. And then the chorus comes in. Oh no, you never let go. Through the calm and through the storm. Oh no, you never let go. In every high and every low. Oh no, you never let go. Lord, you never let go of me. And I'm telling you, as I sang that for the first time, I stood up straight, chin up, shoulders back, and declared, God, I'm not going to let go of you. I can let go of fear because I have a God that will not let go of me ever. And that was so freeing to me. At the time, all I could do was stand firm. And some of you, you're in a jam right now. Your back is against the wall, and the best advice that I could give you is stand firm. If you could do nothing more right now, then simply be a man of God. Be a woman of God. Know 
Be firm in your convictions, firm in your faith, firm in the belief that you can let go of fear because you have a God that will never let go of you if it would position you for God to do some really great things in your life. Fear not. Stand firm. And then lastly, expect God's help. When you're afraid, what you believe about God is revealed. Let me say that again. When you're afraid, what you really believe about God is revealed. And at that moment, you've got two choices. You can freak out like the rest of the world and say, my life is so messed up right now. I don't know what I'm going to do. God can't do anything. God doesn't know. God isn't there. God doesn't care. Or you can fall to your knees knowing what God said to Moses in the Old Testament and what's repeated in the New Testament in Hebrews 13.5. The Lord will go before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. You could be lost in fear or you could say, at least I know this, God's with me. God is for me and God loves me. And God has a track record all throughout history of doing supernatural things for his sons and his daughters when they get in a jam. And I know he can do that for me. So I'm going to anticipate, I'm going to look for, I'm going to expect God's help. The Israelites are trapped with their backs against the wall. The Egyptians are rapidly approaching, fully armed for destruction. And they're at the Red Sea and God never tells them what he's about to do. He doesn't say first, I'm going to part the Red Sea. He tells them, you stand firm. And here's the tricky thing. God's word is clear. That God usually waits for us to make a declaration of faith. He usually waits for us to choose to stand firm in him before he brings in a great miracle. And Moses says, I'm taking a different route. I'm following a different path. You could take yours, but I'm expecting God's deliverance today. And so it says this in Exodus 14, 15. The Lord said then to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Leave the old stuff behind and move on. And then he goes on to say this. Then the angel of God who'd been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Next slide. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. Now this in the Hebrew literally says, it was a blast from the nostrils of God. All night long, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind, and he turned it into dry land. And the waters were divided. And two million Israelites go through the Red Sea on dry ground to the other side. I'm always amazed that in all of his power, God didn't lead the Israelites around the Red Sea. He didn't build a tunnel under the Red Sea. He didn't build a bridge over the Red Sea. He led them through the walls of water. And they get to the other side and they have a worship time like they have never had before. 
and they sang, what a mighty God we have. And perhaps they were singing as I did that day. Oh no, you never let go through the calm and through the storm. Lord, you never let go. In every high and every low, Lord, you never let go of me. What do you think it did for Moses' faith when he's the only one standing expecting God to deliver? And God did. Do you think it made him a little bit bolder, a little bit stronger the next time his back was against the wall? I'm telling you, if you don't get the fearful, sarcastic, worst-case scenario plan, if you choose that, you know, what does that accomplish? I'm putting myself in Moses' camp and fearing not and standing firm and expecting God's help for better days to come. That's the one we all ought to be in. You know, tomorrow, you're going to write a new page in your story. Why would you ever want to write it with the pen of fear? Vocationally, relationally, spiritually in in your life. Life works better always by God's plan. And today I would call you at this time of decision to fear not. I call you to stand firm because we serve a God who did the Passover miracle. We serve a God who did the Red Sea miracle, the bread from heaven miracle. We serve the God who did the water from a rock miracle, who did the Christmas miracle, who did the Good Friday miracle, who did the resurrection miracle. Why wouldn't I believe he'll part the waters for me? Peter reminds us it's decision time in our life. And the result, friends, uh, even the psalmist would say in Psalm 40, verse 4, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who doesn't look to the proud and doesn't turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are your wonders that you've done, the things that you have planned for us. God's got wonderful things planned for you. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. Will you look for them? Will you be prepared? Or will you be found wanting? I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning. And I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for myself and us, actually. And if you have a decision that needs to be made, maybe you've been living in in the wrong camp. And friends, you can't live in the camp of this world and in the kingdom of God. You have to choose. And the camp of God always lives by faith, not by sight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for being a God that is bigger than our fears. In fact, you are so big that if we just take the moment to look to you in Scripture, if we take the moment to to just fall on our face or our knees before you and pray. You're always faithful to show up. Father, when we choose to stand firm and acknowledge you, waters get parted, mountains come down, hearts get tenderized or put back together. Ways become clear because we're walking with you. For my brothers and sisters this morning, I ask for you to just strengthen that relationship with them. Draw them closer by your love and grace and compassion 
so that in standing firm, Lord, they're more prepared to see you do all the wonders you have planned for them. But for the person here this morning who's never called upon you for salvation, who've never seen that first great and the greatest of miracles of what you accomplished for them in taking their sins to a cross outside Jerusalem, you took the punishment for them. Every wrong word spoken, every wrong thought, every act that they committed that was wrong according to your word. You said, I'll take the punishment. And it was bitter. It was severe and it was final. You died once for all. And Father, if we will believe in you, if we will believe in the power of your resurrection that, that drew your son out of that tomb and called him back to sit at your right hand from where he will soon rise and come to call us all to be with him. Father, if we believe, we'll have life. Help someone to find that today in Jesus' name. Amen.